You're listening to New City's Sermon Podcast. We hope you're empowered and challenged as we root deep in God's Word in order that we might grow in the good news of King Jesus and live as faithful citizens of His kingdom right here in our city. Let's get into the scriptures now. The idea was that we live in a really tense, divided moment in our culture. It's a cultural stalemate. So no one's budging and everyone is tossing insults over the line, whatever that line would be. And the hard thing is there's just a lot of lines. And so we were talking about what does it look like to be we? How do we engage one another in unity in the name of Jesus? And so that's actually what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to talk about the power of we, dividing lines and crossing lines in a culture of outrage. And uh, I'll warn you, um, I think you're going to be a little offended today. I think you're going to be pushed a little bit. And I hope it's Jesus that pushes you rather than me. Because I think as Christians, we've got to step up. We've got to do something different than what we've been doing. And uh, we're going to look at some things that Jesus says and something that Paul says. And I think, uh, I think it's going to be challenging. So I'll warn you ahead of time, it's going to be challenging. Um, but I hope that you will take it in and you will really ponder it and think on it. But let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for your wisdom And I pray that you would show us your love. We don't mean warm, fuzzy feelings. We don't mean nostalgia. We mean your radical sacrifice on the cross for sinners. And Lord, I pray that you would make us a people who are more like you. A people who hold on to the radical truth of the gospel. The radical truth that God's wrath has been appeased by your death, the radical truth that we're not good people, but a good person, a perfect person, Jesus Christ, the one who is God and man, has died on our behalf. I pray that we would hold on to that, but we would also love radically, that we would give ourselves away, that even as we talk today, we would, we would, we would be pushed to put ourselves even in situations that feel uncomfortable, and that might cost us, but to do it to show the love of Christ. And all God's people said, amen. So we're going to start off in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and I want you to think about everything that's going on in our culture as we read these words. And I kept the words in red. The words in red are those words of Jesus. And uh, sometimes we don't like the words in red, but here they are. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you, have lo- if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. As we read Romans 12 along with this passage from Romans 5, I'd like, you, I'd like it to be a calm response. I'm going to read the thin lettered words and you guys read the bold one and we're just going to read through this passage together. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil, 
Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Share with the saints in their need. Bless those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Live in harmony with one another. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If possible, as far as it depends on you. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written. says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, if he is thirsty, for in doing so you will be heaping fiery coals on his head, do not be conquered by evil. I find those words so challenging, I was tempted to just keep reading through them over and over and over again. Because we live in, a, in, a, in an age, where, in a culture, where it feels like lines are powerful. Dividing lines between us. There are all sorts of lines in our culture. I'm not talking about lines on the street. I'm talking about lines that separate person from person based on ideology, based on politics, based on race. And it always feels like there's lines and the lines are getting moved and pushed and it's constantly hard to figure out where we are and how do we deal with all these lines. The lines are really powerful. In 2014, though, this image popped into the news. Uh, in, the, in the Ukraine, uh, there was a, a bunch of political upheaval and people were protesting against the government and wanting to see governmental change. And it got violent in the Ukraine. There were a line of people lined up over and over again protesting and a line of police on the other side to keep people in check. And things would get violent and people got killed and it was bloody. But then these amazing images started popping up. And I don't know if you remember this, these images of Orthodox priests who would come and stand between the lines. They'd stand over the police, please, peace. They'd stand looking at the protesters, please, peace. And they were there right in the middle of these lines, praying for people, caring for those who were wounded, burying people who were killed. And it was so shocking because everyone got what was happening just by the picture. They saw these lines in the snow, and here these priests are standing in the middle. And we all know that it's dangerous enough to cross a line where you're looking at someone else and you're, you're moving towards them, it's, it's dangerous. But then to put yourself in the middle, to stand on the line and put yourself in the middle, I mean, these men could have been killed. We're still trying to figure out how to deal with the lines. 15 years ago, the buzzword was tolerance. We just have to tolerate people who are not on our side of the line. But I think we really set ourselves up to fail because no one really wants to be tolerated. Anybody want to be tolerated? 
I can tell you that's not the key to a good marriage. You don't want to wake up and look at your spouse in the morning and go, today, sweetie, I want to tolerate you. No, you, you want to be loved. You want to be known. And so tolerance was kind of destined to fail because people want to be loved even though they're different. At that time, it was interesting that the word enemy was less popular in our culture. So people thought that they would rise above actually having enemies. Like, we're, we're all friends. We can all try and get along. But that has all gone away. I don't hear about tolerance as much anymore. I hear people saying, no, I do have enemies. And it's because we've exchanged tolerance for outrage. We hear about outrage a lot now. Outrage that the other person is on that other side of the line. They are my enemy. Enemy used to not be a word that we used a lot, but people are fine with it now because our culture has shifted from let's tolerate one another to you're different than me and I'm angry about it. In fact, outrage has become a cultural virtue. Outrage has become something that we is endearing to us. Like if you're outraged about something, you're right. And then what we've started to do is we said, listen, if you're outraged about something, what that means is the person on the other side of the line does not have a right to be treated as a human being. And as long as we're outraged, we feel like we have a pass to dehumanize the person on the other side of the line. We've made that cultural shift, and that's the norm. This is the normal now. And as Christians, I have to say, I think we've bought into the norm. I don't think we've done something different. I think that we've gotten sucked up in the lines, in the division, in the outrage. But Jesus is going to chip away at our outrage. Jesus is not going to let us have these clear lines that make us feel safe when we're on one side, nor will he let us dehumanize the person on the other side. In our first passage in Matthew 5, 45, he, he ties this in to being a children of the Father in heaven. In other words, if you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and you've been adopted into the family of God, here's what that looks like. It looks like recognizing that there are other human beings in this world who do not agree with you, who do not share your opinion, and yet share the same space in creation that you do. Jesus says, for God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What Jesus is getting at is this doctrine called common grace. And what the doctrine of common grace says is not everyone is God's child, but everyone is God's creation. In other words, God has his children that he's adopted through Jesus Christ, but everyone is made in the image of God. God has this, this common grace that he gives to all humanity. In other words, people get to live in God's world even though they're not in relationship with God. And Jesus is using this to chip away at our idea that other people are subhuman. No, they're not subhuman. They're people that are made in the image of God. They are image bearers. And so God's children treat people like God's creation. 
In other words, we treat every person with dignity and respect no matter what line they're on the opposite side of. And listen, if you get to the point where you don't feel like you have to do that, you're not actually worshiping God. You're worshiping a God that's created in your own image. Annie Lamont says you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. God's children treat people like God's creation. We cannot fall into this dehumanizing of people that are not like me or not like us. That's not how Jesus wants us to live in this world. And I know that's challenging because all the issues are heated. And all the issues we're talking about in our culture right now are about human flourishing. Some of them are about life or death. And so they're incredibly intense. But what we've done as people is we've joined on with a political side and said, this issue is life or death, so I'm going to tie myself to this political party or this political side because this issue is so important. But the problem with tying yourself and taking everything that, the, that politics offer is that politics are ultimately about gaining power, especially right now in our cultural moment. Politics are ultimately about gaining power. But the movement of God's kingdom is about sacrifice and giving yourself away. And so, so often we go, I'm on God's side on this issue. I'm on God's side. God's on my side. But let me ask you this. Are you on Jesus' side? Are you on Jesus' side? There's this great moment in the book of Joshua where Joshua, who is the Lord's chosen anointed leader, steps up and leads God's people into the promised land. And the book of Joshua starts off with God's promises to Joshua, saying, I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will give you this land, and you will lead this people to victory. And then Joshua chapter 5, Joshua is starting to move towards the, the city of Jericho. And you've heard the story of Jericho. And he encounters this figure, this heavenly figure. It, it turns out it's an angel. And Joshua goes, who are you and whose side are you on? Are you with us or are you with our enemy?" And the, the angel of the Lord says, neither. Neither. Or in some translations, no. Are you for us or are you against us? No. Who are you? I have now come as the commander of the Lord's army. Then Joshua bowed his face to the ground in worship and asked him, what does my Lord want to say to his servant? God had given Joshua all his promises. He had assured him of victory. And when Joshua tried to say, are you on our team or on the other team? No, I'm on my own team. Jesus sides with himself. And as we enter into these issues, the issue is not whether God is on our side. The issue is, are we on God's side? Are we on Jesus' side? Because what Jesus is concerned about is going to go beyond any one political party. Jesus is concerned about unborn babies and unarmed black people. 
Jesus is going to have concerns for justice that no political party can bring to full expression. Jesus is on his own side. Now, I understand that different parts of political parties represents different part of God's character. But when you say, Jesus, are you with us or with them? The answer is no. Jesus sides with himself. And that should bring us to a place of humility, even as we look at our own, our own political opinions and our own political viewpoints. We should be able to critique our side because we know that our side doesn't fully manifest God's righteousness. Tony Evans says it this way. Another idol we have is politics, meaning we think politics, we treat politics like it's our God. We got white evangelicals placing all their hope in the Republican Party. We have black Christians placing all their hope in the Democratic Party, not understanding that God has another kingdom that represents his party. Now, I'm not saying that you can't vote one way or the other, but don't put your hope in that party. Don't, put your, don't treat it as if it's your God. Because I believe as we move forward and things become more and more polarized across the lines, you're going to find it harder and harder as a Christian to fit in either party. You're going to find it harder and harder as a Christian to fit in either party. You may not agree with me, but let me challenge you with this. One of the ways that you know that you have sided with Jesus is that if you actually love people who are across the line from you. In other words, Jesus has drawn a line in the sand. And what's absolutely clear is that if you're on Jesus' side, you are to love your enemies. You're to love those who don't think like you. You're to love those who vote differently than you. You're to love those who have different ideologies than you. You're to love those who have different orientations than you. You are to love those who are across the line. You are to love your enemies. And so if you think that God is on your side, but you are not loving the people across the line, you are not on Jesus' side. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. What's interesting, Jesus has absolutely no problem with us saying that we have enemies. He's actually okay with us saying, I have enemies. What he's not okay with is us not representing our Father, whose family we've been adopted into by Jesus' work. What he's not okay with is us saying, I'm going to not love my enemy. We are called as people of Jesus to love those across the line, whatever line that is. And if you're not, you're not siding with Jesus. But they're not acting like a human being. Those people on the other side of the line are not acting human. They're acting... They're, they're degrading me. They don't care about flourishing. Listen, we are called to treat people like human beings made in God's image, even if they're not acting human. We are called to treat human beings 
made in God's image with love and respect, even if they're not acting human to us. Because just to love those who treat us well is ordinary. That's easy. Anyone can do that. But what God calls us to, what Jesus calls us to, is extraordinary. It's loving people across the line. Jesus says this in verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. The tax collectors were the bottom of the barrel moral people in that culture. And what Jesus is saying is even the most immoral people in our culture can love those who are like them and who love them back. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what Jesus is saying in that last sentence is if you want to represent God's character here on earth, you must love your enemies. Because God is a God who loves his enemies. And we'll unpack that in a moment. Bob Goff was one of our national speakers at Q Commons, and he's, he's just kind of a crazy guy. He was one of the most funny speakers, but he really pushes us towards this loving of enemies, and not just a theoretical, like, I love you, man, but like, love does something. In fact, he wrote a book called Love Does, like, love takes action, and he wrote a follow-up book answering the question, who should you love? Who should you love? And the answer that he came up with was everybody, always. You love everybody, always. And that was the name of his book. Listen to what Bob says. And the way people will believe us is to see the way that we engage the people around us. That's why he wrote the book, Everybody Always, because it's a lot easier to love some people sometimes. But if you want a report card on your faith, see how you're treating the people that you disagree with the most. I, those of you that know me know I try cases against witch doctors. We tried Uganda's first death penalty case against a witch doctor involved in child sacrifice. And this little boy survived the trial and is has been uh, thriving, uh, but it started me thinking, how do I deal with the people that creep me out? And so I've been sending out word on the Bush radio now for years to all the witch doctors. I say the consul general of Uganda is coming, and I command every witch doctor to meet me at the king's hat. And you guys, they come, and they're creepy dudes. They make little dolls that look like me and stick pins in it. I mean, it's nuts. But I asked these guys, what do you want? What do you need? And they said, we don't know how to read or write. So you guys don't freak out. I started a witch doctor school. We don't teach them how to be witch doctors. They already know. We teach them how to read and write. And something crazy has been happening in their lives. Like they're actually seeing themselves differently than they did before. We're educating them. I'm not trying to, I've spent my whole life avoiding the people Jesus spent his whole life engaging. You know why? I didn't want to get any on me. And the simple message of the gospel is this, get it on you. Get it all over you. You want to look like Jesus? Just get people, the people that you've been just polite to, draw them in close. I told these witch doctors, uh, you know, I'm writing the next book and you guys are still learning how to spell. So what if we do this? I'll write all the words. Can you lend your fingerprints and, and we'll make the cover out of your fingerprints? <laughs> pretty creepy, huh? So, so they've all put their fingerprints on this. And when it hit the New York Times, I called up, I said, you guys, we hit the New York Times. And the whole room went up for grabs. And then it settled down. They said, 
what's the New York Times? <laughs> I'm like, don't worry about it. Crazy guy. But you see that when he actually crosses a line in love, or he reaches over that line in love, it takes someone, uh, it takes a group of men who were his enemies and made them friends. And they did a book together. That's crazy, right? But love does. Love takes action. Love moves. Love moves towards people, even if they're not like you, even if they're out to get you. That's what Jesus is getting at. Love does not mean that you have to affirm the evil that someone else is doing. And I think that's where we have a really hard time in our culture. Because the reason that there is a line is because you believe that that person on the other side is not, is not moving towards human flourishing and they're actually doing something wrong. But just because you love them does not mean that you have to affirm the wrong thing that they're doing. You don't have to affirm their evil. Jesus does an amazing job of this when he lived on earth. I mean, if you think about it, it is amazing from Jesus' eyes what it was like to walk in this world. Jesus, the God-man, sent from the Father to come and die for us. Every person he encountered was an enemy of God. Every person that he had encountered was an enemy of God, was under God's wrath and judgment, was either an enemy of God because they were so stuck in their self-righteousness self, self that they didn't believe they needed Jesus, or they were so suck, stuck in their like self-licentiousness, uh, I'm going to do what I want, that they believed they didn't want Jesus. Every person he encountered was at odds with his father. How challenging would that be? Every person you encounter an enemy, and yet he's full of love. He's full of love. He moves near to them. As Bob says, he gets it on them. He gets it on him. One of the great places I see this in scripture is this great story of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler is young, he's wealthy, and he's in power. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, okay, uh, have you followed the commandments? And the rich young ruler says, yes, I followed all the commandments since I was a boy. I've, I've done every one of them. I'm good. Now, he hadn't actually followed the commandments, and Jesus knew this. Not only had he broke some externally, but he'd broken some internally. Like Jesus had said, it's not just about not committing adultery, it's about not lusting in your heart. It's not just about uh, stealing, it's about also not coveting what your neighbor has. And so this man was self-deluded because he thought he was righteous. So Jesus looks at this man and sees everything about him. He sees his sin, he sees his self-righteousness, he sees his rebellion against God, and he says, well, there's one thing that you haven't done. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come, follow me, follow me. See, the man couldn't see himself, but Jesus could see. Jesus saw exactly who he was. And the man thought that he had kept all the commandments, but Jesus gave him something that would he reveal he had not kept the two biggest commandments. Because he could, God, God was not 
his God. Money was his God. And he could not love his neighbor because money was his God. And so in this, in this reaching across the line to this man, Jesus gives him this truth. He's absolutely forthright with him. A line is drawn in the sand. Jesus sees exactly who it is. But look at this. Looking at him, Jesus sees everything about him. Jesus loved him. Jesus sees this self-deluded, self-righteous, greedy man who thinks he's godly. And Jesus loves him. Jesus is full of compassion for him and affection for him. And Jesus gives him this command because he does love him. He's inviting this rich young ruler into more, into relationship with Jesus, into really the life of God's kingdom. Can you go to the next slide? You lack one thing. Go so all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. He invites him into more. He gives him truth. It's as if there is this line and Jesus will not cross it. But Jesus is leaning as far over as he can to grab the man and say, come on this side of the line. Jesus looks at him and he loves him. But then the man decides he cannot do that. He was dismayed or he was sad by this demand and he went away grieving because he had so many possessions. Scott Sauls points out something about this interaction that I think is so profound. The man didn't walk away feeling judged. The man didn't walk away after having been publicly shamed. The man didn't walk away because Jesus had emphasized the line. The man walked away sad because Jesus had invited him into something more. Jesus had invited him in to participate in God's kingdom in relationship with Jesus. And the man was exposed to his God. Too often, I think, people who are not Christians walk away from us feeling shamed or judged rather than having been invited into something more in relationship with us. That's what Jesus does. The man's not judged or belittled or shamed. He's invited into more. And Jesus shows us that love doesn't mean you have to agree with someone. And Jesus is saying, no, love does not mean agreement. There's still a line in the sand. And our culture believes that disagreements mean we don't have to love. But Jesus disagrees with this man. And he loves him. But he does not agree with him. Let me encourage you, as you think about the lines, to let that be a challenge. Do you reach as far as you can over that line in love? Do you invite people into something? Or do you just judge them and shame them for not being on your side of the line? We're called to more. We're called to love. We're called to love. There's a great passage that we read earlier where Paul just lays out for us what love does. And it's all verbs. It's all actions. It's stuff we're just supposed to do and put into practice. And it's, it's written to the Roman church, the church in Rome. And what I love about this is that church in Rome is different politically. The people in that church are not the same ethnicity. They're actually having big fights about culture in the church. And they're having much conflict. They're asking questions like, who is more loved by God? Like, who's really God's people? Who's really on the inside track with God? 
Who's more righteous? And Paul answers that in chapters 1 through 11, but then in chapter 12, he just says, look, if you're going to live out the gospel, love does. And here's how you do it. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is written to people that do not get along. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. When was the last time you shared with someone who voted differently than you in the church? Pursue hospitality. When was the last time you had someone over to your house who voted differently than you? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And you can leave it there just for a second. You know, I think Christians, as Christians, we can be really bad at this last one. Because that line just glares at us. And when someone has something go wrong with them, we can't help but think about the issue that stands between us rather than entering in and loving them and actually sitting with them in compassion. You guys know that a synagogue was shot up in, in, in outside of Pittsburgh. Horrible. And yet some Christians see the fact that, that we believe something is different or we believe differently as a reason not to weep with those who weep. We don't have to believe the same thing in order to weep with them with the tears of Jesus. In this past week, many in the trans community are struggling because of things that are coming out in the news about what President Trump is going to do. I do not have to let go of my biblical definition of marriage and gender in order to reach far across that line and weep with people. And tell them, listen, I'm here for you. How can I love you? And if they ask me what I think, I can tell them what I think, and they may not like that, but that's the risk we take as the people of Jesus. Weep with those who weep. You can go to the next one. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, instead associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. We need that for Facebook. I mean, what if we just thought about that? We put a little sign on your computer that says, give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes before you type something. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. I love that the instructions are just so practical. We tend to find the enemy's weakness and exploit it. But Jesus is leading us to find our enemy's weakness and bless. Your enemy's thirsty, give them a drink. They're hungry, feed them. Do you see your enemies as, as a person that you're actually called to meet their needs? This is radical. This is radical. Well, what if they don't do it back? What if they don't receive it? 
don't be discouraged. Paul ends by saying, don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. In other words, no matter what is the response is, no matter what's thrown at you, keep coming with practical deeds of goodness and mercy to your enemy. If you try and do this on your own, you will run out of energy. And that's why we need the power of the gospel to do these things. The power of the gospel is what Jesus has done for us on the cross to unite us to his Father. And you need to understand something. The lines in our country are nothing compared to the line that was between you and God when you were stuck in your sin. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And our sin is the ultimate line. There is no bigger line in the universe between God's glory and our fallenness and sin. But listen to this. John 3.16, For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son. He sent his son across that line so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus crossed the line, entered in, so that we might be saved. In his sacrificial love, he took on the judgment of God, the wrath that we deserved. And he did all this before we had repented. He did all this before we even realized we were sinners. Romans 5, Paul says this, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ crossed over the line and he came into this broken world and he died for sinners like you and me. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still on the other side of the greatest division in history, Christ came across and died for us. And when grace, God's grace and love actually sinks in, it gives you a new power to deal with that person on the other side of the line. Because you realize that the, the lines are big in our country, but they're nothing compared to the line between God and man that Jesus crossed over. And as you get that line, as you understand God's grace and God's love for you, Rather than giving people what they deserve, you will begin to cross lines yourself. You will find a new power to love those who are different than you. And you will begin to even give yourself away to them. What Christ did is radical and what he calls us to is radical. Because he created the ultimate we. We are now family with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because of what he did. We get to say we, we're in God's family because Jesus crossed a line. And as we get that, it will help us cross lines as well in the name of Christ. I'll leave you with this quote from Joe Saxton, who was also one of our speakers. She said, it's time to make friends beyond our walls, beyond your race, beyond your economic group, beyond your world, beyond your comfort zone, beyond all that's made you, 
you and to offer it freely. Yes, it's an instruction. Yes, it's an opportunity. But honestly, if we do it, it's a gift too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for crossing the great divide and entering in to this broken world on our behalf. And I pray, Lord, that we would understand the depth of difference between our sinfulness and your holiness. Because as we get that gap, we understand what a great work you did. And we understand how vast your love is and how endless your grace is and how complete your forgiveness is. Make us a people who are centered on the gospel and sent out in order that we might demonstrate your kingdom to people who are very different, to people who believe very different things and live very different lives. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and worship. Search so.